would please grab your Bibles and open them up with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17. We continue our study through the Word of God, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We're in chapter 17 of the Gospel of Matthew. If you don't own a Bible, don't have one, maybe forgot yours today, just grab one from under a seat in front of you so you can follow along. Matthew 17, last week we looked at the the event of the transfiguration where Jesus took three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up to a high mountain. Jesus was transfigured before them, and they saw him in his glory, and what an amazing sight that was, an experience for them. We spoke of the fact that Peter got caught up with the fact that Elijah and Moses were also there with him, and made the statement, Lord, it's great that we're here, and why don't I build three tabernacles, one for each of you? And when he said that, we talked the fact that the Father interrupted Peter in his glory, the Shekinah glory, overshadowed them in this bright cloud, and the Father spoke to them, saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And they fell on their faces. And then it says that Jesus came to them, and he touched them, and he said, get up, don't be afraid. That's where we left off last time, and and so we pick up in verse 9. It says, As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered, and he said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, But did to him whatever they wished, so also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. So after this amazing thing that these three get to witness, it tells us that as they start down the mountain now, Jesus says, oh, by the way, don't tell this to anybody. (laughs) Can you imagine? I mean, I would imagine that they're all probably talking about, I can't wait till we get down there and I, I'm going to go right up to Thomas or I'm going to go, you know, guess what we got to see? Jesus said, you don't say anything to anyone until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Now, Mark's gospel, as we've talked a little bit at, from time to time, we look through this, we see Mark gives a little bit more detail. G- Peter was the one who gave Mark the the information that he recorded, and again, Peter being one that was coming down, it tells us in Mark chapter 9, they seized upon that statement. The statement that Jesus said is, don't tell anyone until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. They seized upon that statement, and it says, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. So Jesus says this to them, and then Peter, James, and John continue to talk now, seized by this. They're overwhelmed by what what is said, what Jesus said, so they're talking with each other. And if it wasn't so like us, it would be comical, because they're wondering what it is that Jesus means. Jesus is right there. Why don't you ask him? (laughs) But instead of asking Jesus, they're talking amongst themselves, trying to figure out what it is. And it's so like us, though. So often we come to one another, and what do you think this means, and what do you think that means? Instead of going to Jesus, Jesus, what does it mean? Would you speak to us? Would you show us? Yes, we're to talk with one another. We're to fellowship and encourage one another and and share with one another, but not without Jesus. It's almost like when you read Mark's account, it's almost like Jesus sent him down and he's following later. 
Jesus is right there. And it says that they're talking about what rising from the dead meant. They still don't get it. They understand that there will be a resurrection one day, but they don't understand what is all meaning what Jesus is saying when the Son of Man is risen from the dead. It tells us in John's Gospel a story when this is illustrated in another way. Jesus' friend Lazarus is dead. And Jesus shows up a couple of days afterwards, and Mary and Martha come out to him, and, and, and Jesus says, Lazarus will rise again. And Martha says, I know, I know, on the last day, the resurrection will rise on the last day. And Jesus says this, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He puts it out there in a totally different way, explaining to her and explaining to us that this resurrection means way more than just someday in eternity we will be resurrected with new bodies forever. This is a resurrected life that we have now. Paul, Paul said it this way, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. The power of his resurrection because Christ is in us. We can know that power now. He said in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loves us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. The power of the resurrection. We are new creations in Christ. Dead to that old person alive now in Christ. That is what baptism signifies. That is what it points to. Baptism is not part of our salvation. It is a proclamation to the world that we are a new creation in Christ. We identify ourselves with his death, burial, and resurrection. When we, so the baptism by submersion, when you go under the water, death, burial, and then coming back out of the water, rising again, a new creation. Paul writes again in Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This victorious life, victorious over sin and death because of the victory won for us at the cross. Jesus hung on the cross. He said, it is finished. I have paid the price in full. But his resurrection proves that that price was accepted by the Father on our behalf. Glory to God. They're discussing what it means. And so we, we need to be reminded and embrace what it means for us on a regular basis. They continue their discussion, Matthew records for us. They're talking about the, the role of Elijah. It was prophesied in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. It spoke of Elijah or one in the spirit of Elijah that would come ahead of the Messiah to prepare the way for him. And so no doubt as they're discussing this amongst themselves on their way down, talking, saying, wonder what that had to do with up at the top of the hill. You know, we just saw Elijah. How does that jive with what this, this prophecy is all about? Why do the scribes say this? Why, why do they point to that? Possibly too, because the scribes at other times had pointed this out to the disciples. If this Jesus is the Messiah, where's Elijah? 
totally missing, as Jesus points out, that Elijah has come in John the Baptist. In the spirit of Elijah, John the Baptist. He came first. He came prior. It was prophesied to John's father by the angel who said in Luke chapter 1, it is he, speaking of John, who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, quoting from Malachi. It was prophesied by the angel. It was confirmed by Jesus. Back in Matthew chapter 11, if you'll remember, when we were studying through Matthew 11, when John the Baptist was executed, when, his, when he was beheaded in prison, and word came to Jesus, Jesus speaking about John said, this is the one about whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Again, quoting from Malachi pointing out that John fulfills this. Many believe that one in the spirit of Elijah, spirit and power of Elijah, will come preceding Jesus' second coming in the form of one of the two witnesses that are recorded for us in Revelation chapter 11. But Jesus here pointing out that Elijah, John the Baptist, fulfilled that in his, in his preceding Jesus. And John was the one who pointed Jesus out. This is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Now before we move on from this section, I want to go back to verse 9, because this is important and a lot of application in this for us. Notice verse 9, it says, as they were coming down from the mountain. As they were coming down. We talked last week about this experiencing the glory of God, and, and that, is a, that is something that we should all desire to do on a regular basis to seek God's face and to have him reveal himself to us personally, intimately, devotionally. Whether that be in our individual, personal, devotional time, that should be on a, on a daily basis, on a weekly basis as we gather together here, seeking the Lord together. Monthly we have our prayer time as a church together, coming together like that different retreats and those types of things, to see, to experience the glory of God and to hear in Him individually and personally. But the point that I, I want to make with this is, yes, that is a destination for us, but it is not the final destination. It is also a launching point for us. As they were coming down, they didn't stay up on top of the mountain. They went up there, but then they came back down and they got back into ministry. We're going to see in a moment here that it was immediate. They hit the bottom of the mountain. They're ministering right away. We need to be renewed and nourished, but in that we are equipped to do the Lord's work. We need to be filled, but then we need to be fruitful. We need to be recharged, but then we need to be re-engaged. And we see, verse 14... When they came to the crowd, they get to the bottom of the mountain, there's a crowd waiting, and a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic. <laughs> I have to pause there. Anybody, anybody else ever feel that way? <laughs> my child is a lunatic. Okay, occasionally, not regularly, just every once in a while, right? Okay. He's a lunatic and is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, 
Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. They get to the bottom, they're rejoining the other disciples who were already there. It tells us in Luke's account that the, the other disciples that were down there were in, involved in discussions with the scribes that, that were down there, debate going on. No doubt the scribes probably taunting them because they weren't able to cast the demon out of, out of this boy, questioning again their, who, who they are and all of this type of stuff, this debate that is going on here. And the disciples struggling, probably very frustrated as to the, what is happening. But we see this man, this father, it tells us again in Luke's account that this is his only son, and he comes to Jesus. And notice what he says, and this is important. He says, have mercy on my son. Have mercy on my son. Why am I making a point of that? Because I have people that have come to me for, for prayer at times, and I, I'm guilty at this probably from time to time too, but they'll say, would you pray... For, for my brother, would you pray for my child? Because they're a good child. Because they're good. Because they, because they do so many wonderful things. Would you pray? We need to pray for mercy, always. Because, yes, they might, be, they might be good in our eyes, but the Bible says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We don't, don't ever, ever, ever pray for what we deserve. We need to pray for mercy, and grace. Pray for what we don't deserve. We deserve judgment, but Jesus took that. We need to pray for mercy. But notice also the interceding of this father, passionately interceding. We're going to see in a moment as we take a look at Mark's account of this, that this has been going on for a long time. His son described here, the word again used there is lunatic, but out of his mind, crazy, and we're going to see that this, is, that this is going off completely off the rails and for a while. I say that to encourage all of you parents and grandparents who might have a child or a grandchild that has gone off the rails. And you've prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed. Don't stop praying. Don't stop interceding. Continue to go to the Lord in prayer. This, this father passionately coming to Jesus and, and begging the Lord, have mercy on him. Now if you would, turn with me to Mark, because Mark does record for us quite a bit more detail about this exchange than does Matthew. And again, Peter was the one giving the information to Mark. Mark chapter 9 Mark chapter 9, verse 20. It says, They brought the boy to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. 
When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you to come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him and he got up. This boy possessed by a demon. Now, we don't know how old he is, but we, there certainly seems to be an indication that he might pro- probably be a young man at this point because he points to the fact that he's been like this since he was a child. And notice, I think this is very important, it says that this demon, verse 22, to destroy him. We need to understand that the, the demonic mission against us is not to ruin your day. It's not to cause you trouble from time to time. No, the, the demonic forces that we fight, the spiritual battles that we face, the enemy that we have is out to destroy us. The Bible says that they come only to steal, kill, and destroy. That is their mission. It's not, to, it's not just to get you away from Jesus and get them onto their side. They want to destroy you. They want to destroy us. We are created in God's image. They hate that, and they want to destroy us. And I make a point of that because it says that he often tried to throw him into the fire, throw him into the water, no doubt in an attempt, it says, to destroy him, to kill him, so that he would kill himself in essence. And I say that because if you're, if you're here today and you have ever, ever entertained suicidal thoughts, if you have ever thought about taking your own life because you believe that that will bring an end to your suffering. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Ending your physical life will not end your suffering. That is a lie of the enemy. Here, no doubt, trying to convince this man, this young man, if you just, if you, when I throw you in the water, stay under to destroy him. You see, understand that, that we will live on eternally in one of two places, in heaven or in hell. Killing this body does not end you. It ends your use of this suit. That's it. The problem that we all face is a spiritual one, not a physical one. Yes, we need to die spiritually. Yes, we need to die to ourselves. Jesus said that you lose your life for his sake, you will find it. Yes, but it is a lie from hell that says to kill this body. It says that this father brought the boy to the disciples and they couldn't cure him. And I, I come along and I wonder why. What, what is it that, that is in that? Because we look back in Matthew chapter 10, it tells us Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So we know that they had the power. Jesus gave them the power and the authority. So what is it about this particular situation? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 20 back in Matthew, it is because of the littleness of your faith. Now, 
it's important to understand that the littleness that is being spoken of here is not the size of the faith. Because Jesus is going to go on and say, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, that's a very, very small seed. So when he says littleness of faith, he's not talking about the size of the faith, he's talking about the object of the faith. If you have, your, the, the, as the object of your faith, something little, it doesn't matter how much great faith you have in it, it's not going to work. If the object of your faith is your own abilities, it doesn't matter if you think for absolutely certain you're going to be able to do this. I don't care what Tony Robbins tells you, you're going to fail. If your faith is in you, it's not going to work. I don't care how big your faith is. If your faith is in the world, in the things that the world offers, I don't care how much you believe in it, it will eventually fail. It's the littleness of the faith does not, is not talking about the size of the faith. It's talking about the object of the faith. And Jesus points that out, that even if our faith, small as a mustard seed, is faith in him, anything can happen. Nothing is impossible. This, this idea of faith the size of a mustard seed. The mustard seed, again, being small but real, placed in the right place. If you take, it doesn't matter what seed it is, but if it, let's take a mustard seed and you put it into a, a pail full of wet cement, it's not going to grow. But if you place it into soil, it will grow. The object of the faith will move mountains. Jesus is not speaking here of physical mountains. He's talking about problems and difficulties. And, and the, the Jewish audience that Jesus was speaking to would have understood that. That was a common Jewish idiom or, or a proverb. It, to speak of moving mountains meant to remove difficulties. You know, when we talk about slaying giants, you know, we, we, we reference back to David and Goliath, slaying giants. We're not talking about actually nine-foot-tall people. We're talking about about obstacles and difficulties, and they understood that. It says in Zechariah chapter 4, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Zerubbabel, we see his story told in the book of Ezra. He was one that was responsible for rebuilding Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. Solomon's temple had been destroyed. The people had been taken away captive. They'd been allowed to come back now with the, with the specific mission to rebuild the temple. Now, when Solomon built it, Solomon had unlimited resources at a time of total peace. They, he had all of the gold, all of the stones, all of the timber was provided for him already. He had other kings and other nations sending help and sending supplies. Solomon had everything that was needed. Zerubbabel, none of that. None of it. There are captives that have been sent back into the area with none of the things that Solomon had. And in those situations, when we face these mountains, even in Zechariah, it talks of this, these mountains. Again, we have options. We have choices. We can trust in our own strength and wisdom. We can 
depend on worldly borrowing things from the world, or we can depend on the power of God, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Basically saying, doesn't matter what it looks like, Zerubbabel, doesn't matter what it looks like, man or woman of God, the Spirit of God does what no army of men could do. Rebuilding this temple was an impossible task. And this mountain before them, no doubt, a bunch of other mountains all around it, mountains of discouragement. No doubt, discouragement inside Zerubbabel himself as he looked at daily the the monumental task in front of him. Discouragement from people around. This will never work. wonder how many times that he heard, this just isn't happening, and all of this stuff from other people. Discouragement, opposition from the outside, from the forces that are coming against. Opposition from the inside. We, we read in, in Ezra that as the temple is built and it's starting to come together, people are complaining and mourning because it's not like the old one. Discouragement and opposition. The, the economy was a wreck, obviously. People turning away from God. and Just, re, just relating to anybody. We all go through that, don't we? So what mountains are you facing? Is it discouragement? Is it depression or fear or anxiety? I've spoken with a few people very recently who are really battling anxiety. Temptation? Loneliness? persecution, guilt. What is it? What is it that this mountain that is before you, that mountain can be moved. That mountain can be thrown away in a plane laid before you. But it's not you who moves mountains. God moves mountains. It's not the world that moves mountains. God moves mountains. And we need to place our faith and our trust in him Surrendering completely to the work that he is doing. It takes faith. Faith in him. Faith even as small as the size of a mustard seed, but faith in him. The Bible tells us without faith, it is impossible to please him. But Jesus clearly says here that faith, even small faith, all things are possible. Now this is not that... Name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, you know, pray for a portion, walk out in your driveway expecting it to be there. That's not at all the message. Jesus never intended that. As a matter of fact, John tells us one, one who lived with Jesus and suffered greatly for following Jesus, he writes, this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. Now notice this particular demon that Jesus is speaking of in this, in this boy in our text. It says this kind comes out only with prayer and fasting. He's speaking of the fact that there's, there's different, different demons. There's, they have different powers. They have, some are more persistent than others and that type of thing. And we can take this and we can look at it. There's different size mountains that we all face too, that we will come across. Different, different things that we need to, that, that we were going to come against that are going to require our faith in the Lord. 
It says this kind comes out by prayer and fasting. Prayer, prayer is an attachment to the other world. Fasting is a detachment from this world. And that should be a regular practice as Christians. Praying and fasting. Seeking the Lord's face. And fasting does not mean you don't eat for, for 40 days. Fat, fasting, again, detachment from the world. Taking time away from your normal routine, the, th the time that you would spend shopping for, preparing and eating a meal or two during a day, and setting that side, time aside to seek the Lord. To go before him and pray. Praying and fasting. And by the way, you don't wait until you crash into the base of the mountain before you start praying and fasting. Praying and fasting is a lifestyle. Praying and fasting is something that we do continually and regularly, making deposits. Notice also, too, backing up a few verses, verse 17, Jesus addresses when this first comes, when the question first comes, and he says, you unbelieving and perverted generation. He's speaking of the people as a whole, generation. He didn't single out the disciples here. He didn't single out the father of, this, of the child. He said the generation. And that word perverted means corrupted or, or disordered. It's, it's, it's distorted. It's not following what it should. It's come off the rails. We know the word of God, how it tells us that we are to live individually and as a society. The Bible is clear. It lays it out for us. But he's saying that the generation at that time was perverted. It was corrupted. It wasn't following that. Anybody think we're still in that problem today? That, that we're, we're living in a, in a generation that is, that is perverted. But bottom line, the first part says unbelieving. That's the, that's the underlying problem in all of it. Unbelieving. Not embracing. And we can easily say, yeah, that generation, unbelieving. Those who don't believe anything that the Word of God says. But we need to take a moment and look at this individually. Introspection. Unbelieving. You know, the Bible says, again, 1 John chapter 5, a few verses before the verses we just looked at, it says in verse 10, the one who does not believe God has made him a liar. Let me read that again. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar. A.W. Tozer said this regarding that verse, our hearts shrink from the full implications of such a statement. But what this would seem to teach is that unbelief attributes to God the character of Satan. Jesus said of Satan, he is a liar and the father of it. Unbelief says virtually the same thing of God. It's hard to argue. So when we don't believe, when we don't have faith, we're calling God a liar. That should never be in us. We are to be markedly different than the world around us. We are to stand in stark contrast with the generation that we live in. We should never be grumbling and disputing with one another, because the world sees that. Okay, I've shared with you over the past few weeks that that how that must grieve the Holy Spirit when the body of Christ is divided over such silly things. And the world sees it. 
The world notices the grumbling and disputing, but the world also notices the grumbling and disputing that we do with God, even as Christians. Oh, Lord, I don't like this particular situation. I want this to change, you know, and, and fighting and, and arguing with God about the, the situation and the circumstances that we're in. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, do all things without grumbling or disputing. So how many things are we talking about here? <laughs> all things. Without grumbling and disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. That's how we separate ourselves. Jesus said, the world will know that you're mine by the love you show one another. But here Paul tells us also the way the world's going to know that we're different, that we follow the Lord, is without grumbling and disputing. That we walk by faith. That we believe that God is in control and that, that he's got the plan and we just simply follow along in that plan without grumbling, without disputing. He is the one who is King of kings and Lord of lords. Do we, does our life reflect that we truly believe that? And he demonstrates it. Verse 18, Jesus rebukes the demon. Remember in Mark chapter 9, it says that I command you to come out. And what was the response of the demon? Came out. He couldn't fight. He couldn't do anything else. Jesus is all-powerful. We have an enemy that is powerful, but Jesus is all-powerful. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Absolute power over the natural and the supernatural. It tells us, verse 22 then, while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. He will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Again, not understanding the full implication of what Jesus said. He said, this must happen. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. This has to take place. This is why he came. Not understanding it yet. Verse 24, When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? And he said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? When Peter said, From strangers, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are exempt. However, so that we do not offend them, Go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and for me. <laughs> Quite an exchange that goes on here in these few verses. The, they're back in Capernaum, their hometown. This is where Peter's, Peter's house is. And, the, and the, the ones from the temple that are, that are there collecting the tax to take back to Jerusalem, they come up and say, doesn't Jesus pay this? And his response to avoid any kind of problem is, yeah, yep, sure. He goes back inside. <laughs> Jesus said, what do you think, Peter? Should, should, should I have to pay that tax being the, 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 the son? Does the, does the son of the king pay the tax or is that from strangers? And, but notice in the point that I want to make in this, Jesus says, however, even though I'm exempt, however, so that we do not offend them, do this. We'll pay the tax. 
so that we don't offend them. We as Christians have great liberty. Many people believe, oh, I, can't, I don't want to be a Christian, man. You guys live under all those rules and regulations and everything. No, we have great liberty as Christians. We have been liberated as Christians. But our liberty is not license to go out and, and live a lifestyle of sin. Our liberty, we don't exercise our liberty at the risk of offending others either. Turn with me quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Because I, I hear this a lot, and I'm sure that you've either thought this or, or maybe you've been approached with this question before too, but 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the question being, as a Christian, is it okay for me to fill in the blank? As a Christian, is it okay for me to drink a couple beers? As a Christian, is it okay for me to go see this movie? As a Christian, is it okay for me to play this video game? As a Christian, is it okay for me? And again, you can fill in the blank with those, those things. We see that Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but all things do not edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience' sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience' sake. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who has informed you and for conscience' sake. I mean not for your own conscience, but for the man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? What, speaking of specifically here, this meat offered to idols, it was, it was a question that was brought up. The, the meat that you bought in the marketplace stood a very good chance of being offered to a false god before it was brought to market. So the question was, should we eat that meat? And can, what if the meat's been offered to idols? And Paul says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because all the, uh, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. It doesn't matter if it's been offered to idols. And here's the best thing, just don't ask. Just eat it. But if somebody says it's been offered to an idol, he says, don't eat it. Not because you're bringing condemnation on yourself. Not because your own conscience should have a problem with it. But the person who told you that it's been offered to an idol. Or somebody that maybe overheard that it was offered to an idol. It might offend them, so don't do it for their sake. He goes on, verse 31, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. Here Paul gives us a litmus test in these verses we've just looked at as to how to answer that question. Is it okay for me to whatever? First, verse 23, is it profitable? Is it beneficial? He says all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. Not all things edify. Not all things build up. And if it's not edifying, we shouldn't do it. If it's not beneficial, why would we do that? Back a couple of chapters in chapter 6, 
Paul says, all, verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Another thing here. Is it a master of us? Does it control us? This thing that we want to do, is it something that I have to do? Because my flesh is desiring or craving it, does it master me or am I in complete control of it? Is it profitable? Does it master me? Back in chapter 10, verse 30, can I give thanks for it? Honestly giving thanks for this. If I partake with thankfulness. Verse 31, in those last couple, verse 31, is it for God's glory? Do all things to the glory of God. Can you give God glory in what you're about to do? Can you give God glory in what you're, being, what you're questioning? Because that is the goal of, of our lives as Christians, is to bring glory to God. Not to see how close we can get to the line without going over. It's to bring glory to God. And lastly, in verse 32, give no offense to others. And that's back to the point in Matthew so that we do not offend them. We don't do something that might cause someone else to stumble. If you can go through that list and, be, and, and honestly answer those questions going through that list, then you have liberty. Liberty is not, again, license, but we have great freedom, but go through that list. If what you're about to do could cause somebody to stumble, don't do it. Not because you're bringing condemnation upon yourself, but because you hold somebody else higher than yourself. Isn't that what Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. You can say, I can do this. I have liberty to do this. And I don't care if you have a problem with it or not. That's not following this. We should be concerned. If this person has a problem or this could cause them to stumble, I won't because I care for them. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So Jesus first here says we don't want to offend them. Then he tells Peter, and he gives them some interesting instructions on how to take care of this and not to offend them. He tells them, go and take a hook, throw it into the water. The first fish that you pull out, look in its mouth, there'll be a shekel in there. Go pay the half shekel tax for each of us with that shekel. Now, at first glance of that, we can gloss right over the fact that the first thing that Jesus is telling Peter to do is humble himself greatly. Because the last time Peter ever picked up a fishing pole, he was probably just a little boy. Because Peter's a professional fisherman, and professional fishermen don't use fishing poles. <laughs> Not then. They used nets. Fishing poles, you catch a fish one at a time. They use nets, so they catch them hundreds at a time. So Peter, go dust off that fishing pole and go throw it into the water. And you're going to catch a fish, and you're going to pull that fish out, look in its mouth, the first one you catch, and there'll be a shekel in it, use that to pay. Now, the other thing, anybody else think that took great faith? I mean, a ton of faith. That he's going to say, okay, <laughs> all right. And it doesn't tell us, but I wonder, did Peter go get his fishing pole, sneak around to a secret place behind a big rock and go fishing like this because he didn't want anybody to see? Or did he walk out and say, guys, you're not going to believe this, but follow me. You want your tax? Come with me. I don't know, it doesn't tell us. But it sure begs the question with me, has God ever spoken to you 
and told you to do something impossible? What's your reaction? How did you respond? Was it, okay, I'm not going to tell anybody, and if it works out, I'll give you glory, Lord. Or would you, did you go to others and say, would you pray for, with me about this? Because this, this and, and regardless of what their response is, are you crazy? That's nuts. You can't do that. Did you keep going forward anyway? God wants to use us to do the impossible, regardless of what other people think, regardless of if the world thinks that's crazy. And a lot of times when we do step out in faith, even those closest to us will say, that's crazy, you can't do that. But if God has called you to do it, he will equip you to do it. I hope you all come back next weekend anyway. But I want to invite you to come next week. Make sure you come next week because I have a story to tell you. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> it's a teaser. A story of great faith, a story of impossible situation, a story that said, go cast a hook, trust me. If you have, if God has spoken to you, by the way, and you've ignored that because you said, man, that's impossible, what, what would people think? What, I can't, I couldn't do, if that's happened to you, it's okay. But go today and say, Lord, I'm sorry, I, I repent. Speak to me again. Open up a door again that only you can open and no man can shut, and I'll follow you. I'll do it. He wants to do that in us. He wants to do that through us. Lastly, just last point and we're done. Take that and give it to them for you and for me. We've been talking about mountains, monumental problems that Jesus said, you just simply give it to me, trust in me, have faith in me, and then watch me move that mountain. This isn't a mountain. This is a half shekel tax. It's like finding a penny on the ground, a half a shekel. And Jesus said, I'll take care of that too. Come to me with all of these problems, everything that you face. So often we come to the Lord when we, when we get the cancer phone call or, or the divorce or all of the, the, the major problems. We go to the Lord with those and yes, okay, mustard seed faith, all right, got it, God moved this mountain. But then when the little things come along, I don't want to bother Jesus with that. We think that he wouldn't stoop down to that level. Guys, we have no idea and we never will. The step that Jesus took down from his seat of glory to become one of us. That step alone we'll never understand, but is way bigger than any other step that he takes to come down to our level to meet us where we are, no matter what problem we're facing. He wants to be involved in all of that. He wants to. I just uh, The personalness of that. <laughs> Not only am I going to take care of my half shekel with this miracle, Peter, but yours too. Let's pray. Lord, thank you.